Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24 for our sermon text and stay standing while I read our passage. 2 Samuel chapter 24, the last chapter of 2 Samuel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my, my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Aror on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim-Hodshi, and they came to Dan-Jaan and around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned and it is I who have done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. 
So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be held back from the people. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we study this passage that you will um, bless every one of our thoughts and meditations in the words of my mouth. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So this is the final chapter of 2 Samuel. We don't go too far into the book of 1 Kings before David dies. His death is laid out in the second chapter of 1 Kings. And so this is, we're coming to a close of the, the life of David. And this, this last chapter seems to be a final report of a significant event in David's reign. And this is probably the, the second most significant event in David's reign to uh, the, or at least sin, um, compared to uh, the, the incident uh, with Bathsheba and Uriah. And remember that Uriah's name was the last name before chapter 24, the last name of chapter 23. And so a reminder of the, uh, the faults of the king, but also a reminder always of the mercy of God. And so David determines, I mean, this first verse, verse, verse 1, Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and the anger of the Lord incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Now there's a lot of mystery packed into that verse. It seems that the anger of the Lord pushed David to do something um, that was sinful. Um, we know that... Um, we know that this was the actions of David and the actions of his own heart, and yet uh, it was in the context of the anger being poured out to the Lord that David took these actions. Now, what does he do? He, he musters the military, right? He calls together the men of military age is what he's doing, and he's, he's, um, he wants to take uh, a number why, though, is this sinful? Why is this sinful? Um, other kings, 
uh, Ahab at some point mustered the army and took a census, and there's no, nothing in the text that makes it seem as if that was sinful. God himself um, asks census to be taken of the people as well. And so why, though, is this sinful? Well, there's, there are a lot of theories that the commentators um, uh, posit at this point. The, the first is this, and this is from Josephus. Josephus put this forward. He said, in, uh, he, he, uh, looking at Exodus 30, 11 through 16, that, that, those, that passage lays out how to muster the army. And when you take a census, each of them, it says, shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Right? So there's that law in there that when you take a census of the men of war, that each of the men is supposed to bring a payment, a ransom, a, um, a, a, an atonement price. Right? And why, why would they have to do that? Why, it seems like you would pay your army and the army wouldn't pay the, the king. Well, it's because they were moving from secular to sacred vocation. The armies of Israel were, were holy and to, were to be consecrated to the action of the Lord. And so when they went from their secular vocation, they paid that ransom so that they could enter into sacred work. And so that's atonement money. Uh, so that's not mentioned here in our passage, that ransom. So some people say that's why it was sinfully taken, because it didn't follow the rules laid out in Exodus 30. And so it's sinful. But that's not mentioned in Joab's dissent, right? Joab objects not to the way the census is being taken, but he objects to the fact that David wants to take a census. David wants to muster the troops. And so, um, just as an aside, here's Joab again. And he's good this time, right? He's doing what's right rather than uh, what's wrong. And so uh, he's giving, he, he's making the king pause and think, is this, is this what you want to do? Now, there's um, some say that, uh, and I think this is probably the most common evangelical take, some say it was so David could boast that he was taking the census. He wanted to boast in his strength. He wanted to be able to say, look how many men I have, and, you know, it was sort of him puffing out his chest and saying, come at me. Um, and so, but there is nothing, there is nothing in the text that um, makes that clear or that shows us that that is motivating David. Um, God's, um, <clears throat> God's response and David's words make it clear that um, that what he's done has sinned. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, he also could, um, he also could be mustering the troops. He could be gathering the troops to for a unlawful purpose. We don't know. Again, we don't know why he called together the troops, but um, he did. Uh, there's nothing to indicate that he was doing it for something that God did not approve. And then um, one other 
explanation that I came across is that 1 Chronicles 27, 23 through 24, which is a parallel passage to this one, implies that David ordered Joab to include in his count those not yet subject to call up. So the men younger than 20 were included in this count, even though they weren't, um, they weren't able to go into battle. And that would be, you know, that would sort of be the same thing as to um, giving David a boast. It amplifies the numbers, things like that. But in the end, we don't know. We don't know from the text. We can make, we can uh, posit all kinds of ideas. We can uh, try to fill in the, the cracks of Scripture and decide why it was. But in the end, we don't know it was... Um, don't know why it was sin, but we are told that it was sin. And so we accept that testimony from the word of God. We don't know why, but God doesn't have to explain himself, right? God does not have to explain himself, and he does not have to explain himself to people who have fallen senses of justice and fairness, right? God does not have to explain himself. I mean, at the end of the book of Job, after Job is, has uh, not been given a full picture of his sufferings, God doesn't really tell him anything other than to tell him to be quiet and stop being foolish, right? So God does not have to give an explanation of himself. And there are times when he doesn't, and there are many times that will be the case in your own lives. God will not give a reason for what you are suffering and what you are going through, though you may search scripture to find comfort from what he has laid out there. There may not be a specific reason that's given to you. So the census takes place. It takes nine months and 20 days. 800,000 in Israel, valiant men who drew the sword, it says, and then 500,000 in Judah. So if I do my math right, that's 1.3 million that are ready to fight for Israel. Immediately after this census comes in, so there's, but remember, there's been nine months and 20 days that have passed from the order given to when David receives the word, and when he receives the word, his heart then troubles him, verse 10. His heart troubled him. <clears throat> and this is, this is the blessing of a tender conscience, right? The blessing of a tender conscience. When you get to the point where, or the, you know, contrast that to the disaster of a seared conscience, a conscience that is so seared, that is so dead, that when you sin, you feel no, no remorse, no fear of God, nothing. Here David has done this census, and he is grieving that he's sinned against the Lord. And it shows you the blessings of that tender conscience. So what does David do? He goes to the Lord in prayer to repent. David's heart was troubled troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, Lord, please take away the, the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. He's not mealy-mouthed. He's not trying to justify his actions. He just straight up says, I have sinned greatly. I have sinned greatly. And he doesn't notice, he doesn't go back 
to what we read in verse 1 and say, God, you know, you incited me to this. You pushed me to this. You put me in these circumstances. You made me the king, right? You, you've, you brought up enemies against us. Why, you know, what's wrong with what I'm doing? I'm just trying to be prudent, right? That would be hardly a confession of sin. Rather, the tender conscience of David leads him to say, I have sinned greatly. I have acted very foolishly. Take away the iniquity of your servant. And wonderfully, he, he says that to God himself. Now, the prophet Gad comes to him, and we have this, this situation that we see nowhere else in Scripture. A man has sinned, and he's given a choice of how, how he'll be punished. Right? Is there any other section in Scripture that has something like this? I mean, Solomon gets to choose what, wisdom, you know, what gift he receives from the Lord, but um, there's nothing quite like this unless I'm just completely blanking out. But the prophet Gad speaks and says, choose one of these things. And so there, there are three things here. Seven years of famine on the land, three months before your foes, as your foes are chasing you and, and um, taking victory. And then three days of pestilence. David says, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let us fall into the hand of man. Okay, so again, that's a little bit obscure given the, the three things that he's, he have been laid out there. That makes an explanation of the second one, right? He doesn't want to fall into the hands of the men who are, are the men who are coming against Israel. It doesn't necessarily same, uh, explain the first one, but uh, there's a there's an intensity to seven years of famine that um, he may have wanted to avoid over three days of pestilence. To place your hands into the power of God for three days to him seems better than being at the, in the hands of your enemies or um, at the uh, hands of those seven years of famine. And so <clears throat> it's a sweet statement of David again. It's a faithful statement. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let us fall into the hand of man. Matthew Henry on this verse says this, in, his, in this difficulty, David chose a judgment which came immediately from God, whose mercies he knew to be very great, rather than from men who would have triumphed in the miseries of Israel and have been thereby hardened in their idolatry. He chose the pestilence. He and his family would be as much exposed to it as the poorest Israelite and would continue for a shorter time under the divine rebuke, however severe it was. The rapid destruction by the pestilence shows how easily God can bring down the proudest sinners and how much we owe daily to divine patience. And so a few things pop out of there from, from Matthew Henry's commentary. He, he chose the pestilence because he knew that he and his family would be exposed to it just as much as the poorest Israelite, whereas famine would have afflicted the, the poorest, and he would have been maybe protected from that punishment. So he includes himself in the punishment. And then um, 
And then the whole statement about him knowing that the mercies of God were very great. He also knew that the power of God was very great. Right? He knew that the power of God was very great and God could do whatever he wanted, whatever he willed, but he knew that God was merciful, whereas man and mankind are not merciful. Psalm 30, verse 4 through 5, Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. There's that same hopefulness in the mercy of God. There may be brutal dispensations of his um, providence, and, and yet his anger is but for a moment toward his people. His favors for lifetime. Joy comes in the morning. But man being corrupt by nature, knows no end to the ways that he can be cruel to other men, right? I mean, we don't, we don't have to look very far for us to think about the, the ways that man has determined how to be cruel to other people. I mean, think of the 20th century, 20th century wars, right? Just the, the, utter, the, the utter destruction that men brought to other men. Um, think of Boko Haram, right, in Nigeria, even now, afflicting Christians and Christian churches and doing so in despicable, uh, torturous ways. Think of, I mean, think of gang murders in Chicago. Think of, think of 5,000 abortions, 2,500 abortions up the road in Greenville just last year, right? Man can be very cruel. We, we know how to be cruel to one another. Think of sex trafficking and the scourge of that and the cruelty of that, the, the utter, utter cruelty of that. And we could go on and on and on and on. And so we could come up with, with thousands of ways in which man is very unkind toward men and, and merciful, and where mankind... Uh, seems to have no end to coming up with ideas of how to afflict other people. I mean, in the book of, of Jeremiah, when it's talking about them sacrificing their children to Moloch, it says that God didn't even conceive of such a thing, right? And yet we've, we as fallen people have figured out those cruelties. But God, on the other hand, is not by nature corrupt. God, by nature, is kind. God, by his nature, is love. He is a father, so he disciplines us for our good. And so there are hard things that come to us. But he does that because he is love and because he wants what is good for us, right? But think of this. He's the father who sent his son into the world to save us. Right? His work is to be merciful to mankind, to save us. He is not devising ways to be cruel to men. He devised the one way by which a man may be saved and come into the presence of God and not be consumed by his holiness. So we praise God for that. I wrote this here. I'm not sure it's totally true, but it, was, it made me think. The mercies of man are cruel, but the cruelty of God is merciful. 
right? There's a sense in which that's true. The hardest things from God are always about his mercy, always about his glory, whereas the, the, the kindnesses of man are even corrupted by cruelties, right? Um, the nicest things that we do are, are corrupted by our self-centeredness and so on. And so that's what's wrapped up in this statement of David and why he wants, he wants to fall into the hands of God because he knows that the nature of God is to be kind. The nature of God is to be kind to his people. Um, mercies are the divine character, not the divine exception, right? Whereas for us, mercies are the exception. For God, mercies are his character and not the exception. David knows all of this. And so he chooses, to, uh, he chooses the third option. And yet he still says, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So what happens, the Lord sends a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a football stadium full of people die through the pestilence. The king sinned, the people suffer, right? The representative head sins, and the people suffer. And then we get this picture of what is the means that God is bringing about these deaths. It's the angel of the Lord. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, so he was going to go further, right? He's coming up to Jerusalem where David is and the Lord relented there from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed it, Here, here's God telling the angel, it's enough, relax your hand. It's good. You've done enough. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people. So he has a vision of this angel that is striking down the people. And he said, behold, and now we get, again, David's heart coming out here. Behold, it's I who have sinned. And it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. But there's no mention of a response to David's words there. This is what fathers of homes, this is what pastors and elders of churches this is what presidents and senators of nations need to remember is their sin afflicts the people that they govern right and fathers i mean think of that the sin that you engage in will have effects upon your household and your children and so david here you know he acknowledges that i've sinned Take it out on me, not on these sheep, not on the people. No response. No response to that. But it is sweet that David is interceding on behalf of the people. He is praying to God and saying, no, no, let your punishments fall on me. And that is the, that is the mind of Christ, right? That is the heart of Christ. Christ, Jesus, took took upon himself our sins, you know, and said, you know, lay the punishment on me. 
So David goes to, um, so 70,000 men die. Um, David pleads, and God, Gad then comes to him and says, well, go and make sacrifice. So David and Aruna negotiate like good Hebrew men. No, take it. No, I won't. Here's the price I'll pay. You know, we see this in the book of, of Genesis as well, this ritual. And then David says this as they come, you know, as Aruna wants to give the threshing floor and the offerings and all the supplies and everything he needs to do this. And David says this one point that stuck out to me. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. I'm not going to make sacrifices to God that are easy, that just fell into my lap, that cost me nothing. Which... Which makes the point that we should think about that sacrifices to the Lord are costly. Right? Making sacrifices to God are costly. Tithing is costly. Keeping the Sabbath can be costly to you. Right? Sexual purity is costly because you will be mocked for it. Right? All of these things, sacrifices to the Lord are, um, are costly. And the things that we think maybe are sacrifices to the Lord, like going to an, you know, an orphanage in South Africa right along the coast where you're living in a glorious place you would never want to leave, may not be the kind of sacrifice that, that the Lord is, is calling you to. Um, go into the middle of nowhere in Africa, right, and do some uh, ministry when the power goes out for a week at a time. <laughs> not on, uh, <clears throat> not in the cushy. But we, I mean, we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to want to define as sacrifice those things that cost us very little. And we're ignorant of the things that have been very costly that honor the Lord, right? Uh, I mean, to give 10% to tithe is painful at points. We all know that, right? It's painful to give what God has given you, especially when you have bills to pay. And things may take longer, and you actually may have to say no to yourself, right? And structure your life in such a way so that you may tithe. And there is a, there's a cost, there's a sacrifice to that, Right? What about being fruitful? Being fruitful and having children. Any cost to that? <laughs> There's a great cost to that, and that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Um, the, the costliness of that. And so to, to um, I mean, we don't even know the ways that it's costly to us, but uh, it honors the Lord. And so, but there are so many things we could do other than that that would appear costly, but, but weren't. It's not the rubber meets the road sort of costly. And so um, this phrase stayed with me, and I hope it's one of those, one of those scriptures that I just keep uh, mulling over in my head. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Now... That's the end of this story. The threshing floor is bought. The sacrifices are made. And the, 
The last phrase stands out. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. So the, the sacrifice, it seems like this, the pestilence stopped before David got to the threshing floor. But this makes it clear that these sacrifices and these offerings were made in order to halt the plague that was coming upon the land. But remember this as we come toward um, significant decisions in our own country that it is only by prayer for the land that the Lord will, will bless, right? We need to pray for our own country. We need to pray for our own land. And what do we pray? We pray that we might live in a context where it's easy to come together to worship and we can lead quiet lives in the worship of God, pure and simple, and that our children can too. That's what we pray. But all of that, it seems, is threatened right now. Right? So are you praying for our land? Pray for our land. Um, speak to others about the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Lead them into the kingdom um, that's not of this world. Right? And, um, and they will be useful in uh, the kingdoms of this world. So ultimately, God provides this altar and the sacrifice right, of his son. God provides the altar and the, own, the, the propitiation for all of our sins in his son. The place, uh, this aruna, the, the threshing floor here, becomes the place where Solomon builds the temple. Right? This is where the temple was built. And all kinds of blood was shed for the sins of the people ultimately being fulfilled in the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all, for all sins. And the, and the blood of Christ is actually able to wash from sins and doesn't have to be repeated year by year in order to uh, be effective. And so praise God, God has provided the sacrifice. That sacrifice of Jesus Christ is exactly what King David needed and it's exactly what every, every man, woman, or child that has ever lived needs <clears throat> in order to come into the presence of God and know eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is our sacrifice. We thank you that by his blood we have been cleansed and we have been washed as white as snow, that our sins have been removed from us as far as east is from west. Father, we thank you for the life of King David and what we know of it from your word. We thank you that, that we resonate with David, that he was a sinner, and yet David surpasses us in that he had a deep faith and a love for you that is commendable. And so, Father, we know that he was a man after your own heart, and I pray that we would all live and believe in that way that we would believe in the grace of God, in your good character, in your kindness, that we would love you and walk in a manner worthy of, your great, of the great Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this evening that you've given us together. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.